Thank you, Grant. Well, we continue our series that we're going to be following throughout the season of Lent, right up until uh, Easter, which is based on the book of Revelation, and we've been covering the first five chapters in that time, and different parts of the year we'll revisit parts of Revelation. And the title, as I explained last week, Then and Now, Now and Then, is uh, alluding to the fact that it was speaking into the, the world of the very early churches at the end of the first century, at the time of uh, the Roman Empire and the growth of Roman imperial worship. And last week I highlighted how in each of those centres temples were being built to the emperors. Uh, initially uh, the emperor Domitian, who rather styled himself on being like Nero, come back again, um, and then uh, following um, Nero's death, sorry, um, Domitian's death, that continuation of ramping up of persecution for the churches. And in particular, it's the area of Asia Minor in um, Western Turkey. But as much as it was speaking into that world, it is doing so in a way which explains the world throughout all times. And whereas last week I focused on the shadow of the emperor and the Roman Empire as being the dominant uh, world changer of the time, this week it'll be a shorter sermon, but it's going to focus on the much greater truth that the Roman Empire and the power of the emperors was nothing compared to the presence of the living God. And that is what totally orientates this perspective that is truly world-changing. So we're going to explore just a little bit of what that means for us in our own time and in our own challenges as a church. So as I mentioned last week, the seven churches that are alluded to are quite identifiable and they follow pretty much what a courier route would have taken around the area of Western Turkey, then known as Asia Minor, as a province of the Roman Empire. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then concluding with Laodicea. And next week we're going to start looking at the first of those letters or edicts to the church of Ephesus. The relationship between Christ and um, the churches was revealed to John, who was in exile on the island of Patmos. Now it's uh, Patmos as it exists today. Um, It's a very small, rocky outcrop of an island, not nearly as large as the wider um, islands around like Samos and others. And it was a popular place to exile people. Um, Now, it wasn't the same as slavery or putting people in prison. It's for a class of people who just, they want out out of the picture. (laughs) They don't want to have their um, messaging Um, being heard by a wider population. So we're told that John was in uh, exile on Patmos. John being the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, um, and uh, so one of those who really did know what the presence of Jesus had been. He'd followed Jesus around. The vision that is revealed to John and that he is tasked with a recording and then communicating to others is a heightened version of what was familiar from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, set five or hundred years earlier 
in the time of the great change of empires of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the uh, Alexander the Great, and all the, uh, the world movements of that time, which still continue to the present day, Hellenism and all those different cultures that we assume, democracy and all those things, all were um, shaped at that period of history. In the time of Daniel, the question was asked, well, where is God in the midst of all these world movements and these superpowers, these enormous armies and these dominant personalities, these generals and political figures who sweep through? And, of course, it doesn't take much for us to exercise much imagination to think through that actually is no less our world. Powers and superpowers and dominant personalities and movements that seem unstoppable. In the book of Daniel, halfway through, there is a, a dramatic scene where a vision is opened of one who comes on the cloud of heaven, one like a son of man, a human-like figure who comes with a much greater power and authority. Now that is almost word for word the image that John is picking up here in, um, in Revelation. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now whilst the, uh, the Jewish candlestick, the menorah, actually has seven candles on them, these are seven independent candles. They relate to each other. And in and around this, this image that is just so bright, so powerful, so full of energy that John says he, he felt as though he was dead, just in the sheer presence of that energy and that brightness. And it's a lovely verse that just says, and this figure, this one like the Son of Man, this powerful, awesome figure, puts his hand on my shoulder and said, don't be afraid. That in itself I find very moving. But these seven golden lampstands were mysterious, but as is used in the New Testament, the word mystery has a particular meaning when it's used in the New Testament. It is something which God alone knows, but can choose to reveal. And this is a moment where God is choosing to reveal a greater truth. Can't be investigated. Scientists can't put together experiments to discover this. It is only to be revealed by God. And it actually sets the backdrop for the whole book of Revelation. It is the heavenly realm where God is present and is recognised and is authoritative in his hand over all creation, over the whole universe, is opened up and connected with earth. You remember the simple line in the Lord's Prayer that is so powerful, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' whole ministry was bringing down snapshots, little glimpses of heaven upon earth. The book of Revelation is showing how the two are bound together at one. What we experience in the world today is part of a bigger cosmic narrative between that which is chaotic, destructive, that which is um, barren and death. It's uh, characterised by death. It is lifeless. 
and God's creative purposes of life and restoration and wholeness and flourishing and of growth. So it's the confrontation between those two that is playing itself out in the human stage. And that continues to be the case today. Numbers are a significant feature of the book of Revelation. And for the first audiences, especially those who come from a Jewish background, they will be into it. The book of Daniel was full of numbers. It talks about three and a half. What's the big deal, three and a half in the book of Daniel? Well, it's half seven. It actually says we're halfway to seven. Um, they recognised and they would actually be able to read a narrative through the numbers as such. I'm not going to go through all the numbers that we'll encounter in the book of Revelation, but the first one is very present today, is the number seven. Seven candles, seven churches, and seven is repeated through a lot of the imagery that we will encounter in the book of Revelation. Symbolically, seven is the number for completion. It is that which is complete, as God has intended it. Six is short of seven. It's a sense of this is, this is not what God is intending. And other numbers, as I say, like three and a half, means we're, we're not there yet, but we will get there. But seven is the number of completeness. And of the seven candles representing the seven churches, it represents the complete church throughout all time across the ages. It isn't just true of these seven churches in Asia. Otherwise, they would have received this message and, and uh, tucked it away and that that's, would have been the end of it. But this is intended for the hearing of God's church throughout all times, all places, and the invitation for us to see ourselves in the same narrative, in the same story. So we come to this image among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, the phrase son of man is be another way to say human. We're all sons of men and women and humans, and that that's means that we're part of that uh, human species. And it picks up the phrase is used exactly that way in the book of Daniel. Here, there, it's a heavenly figure who, is, who draws together the people of Israel, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, in the Old Testament prophecy, some angels actually have this characteristic, the angel Michael and others. But in particular, it is a manifestation of God who becomes present in these forms. This is the centre of not only of all power and authority and life and all that is true of the world, but also in whose hands the vision is, is saying, this is the voice to listen to. Don't listen to the emperor. Don't listen to those armies and those who will be trying to make power plays and control your towns and your, your cities. This is the one you must be mindful of and listening to. And then it concludes with, as for the mystery now revealed through this revelation of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the angels are somewhat cryptic characters. They can be of the heavenly realm. But the word itself actually means messenger. Um, And it can mean anyone who God has raised up to convey a message on behalf of God. And we're not told to try and nail down exactly what is in mind here. Remember I said last week, allow the drama of the moment to flow over us rather than trying to identify everything that comes up as it goes. So we have this image of the, uh, the seven lampstands, the seven stars. And we're invited to engage with the imagery of those doesn't matter what type of lampstand, it's not described in an ornate detail. But a candle is a candle in the dark brings brightness. It's a figure of hope. But it's also incredibly vulnerable. A gust of wind and it can be blown and it can go. And so the seven churches are in that space of being called to be the light in their world, in their cities in their towns, but at a blast of wind, it can be blown out. Now, Jesus uses the imagery in his own teaching when he talked about how a a, a bruised reed he will not break, a, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. But the challenge is to recognize that do not take life for granted. In particular, as we go into the seven churches, and we'll start next week with uh, Ephesus, there are that searing words says that I know everything about you. There is nothing about you as a church that I don't know. And there are things that I commend. And there are things that are not right. And they are named. Then there is a promise. But if you hear my words and respond to them and do them, there'll be life. But if you fail to do so, the candle will be snuffed out. As we look at the seven churches, in particular one of the saddest ones for me is looking at Ephesus. There is no church in Ephesus. Now it's actually in Turkey and there is the Greek Orthodox Church, or sorry, the um, Eastern Orthodox Church has a presence in Turkey as a culture. But there is no church in Ephesus. It was the growing, vibrant church that everyone was talking about in the first century. I have put made, made available um, both in the email that went around and some printed copies on the table. There's, um, if you want to read ahead and look at the churches, just identify who's speaking, who's named, who's being addressed, what, is, what are they commended for, what are they rebuked for, what is the promise that is given, what is the warning that is given. And you can go ahead and just begin to engage your own thoughts around those themes as we go. Where does it leave us as a church at this time? I came across a quote, I haven't got the actual words from the Pope, who said it's not that we're going through a world of change. It is our whole epoch is changing in the world around us. And that is taking a lot of processing and working through where do we sit within that. 
the answer is not to be found through strategy and through management processes and through gathering together all those sort of uh, plans. The answer is found in listening to God. That is the vital thing, and I'll pick it up a little bit later in our service. Um, after our service, I'm actually going to talk a bit more about our discerning process that has been underway. I, I called for a prayer, and we've had gatherings last year, and we are continuing with that as we go in the present time. So more about that later. But let me just underscore the imagery. There is always a frailty to us. The history of the Western church in present times actually hasn't come from outside. Christopher Wright, the great uh, biblical scholar who's written a lot about missions, said the biggest threat that challenges the church today is the church itself. And our gathering in and being very inward focused and creating other idols that we think are sacrosanct that can't be touched And he says, the longer we do that, the least we will be listening to where God is wanting to call us. But as we go through the book of Revelation, as dire and as dark as moments can be, the light and the power and the hope of heaven overwhelms it. And this heavenly chorus reminds of it as we go through the book of Revelation. So it is a powerful book of hope. But front and centre is our attentiveness to the one who is like a son of man, who is God in human form, who has holding the church. So what is the simple truth to take away? It's not so much a sort of moral lesson to learn to live out. It's a more profound truth. This church is the Lord's church. None of us owns this church, never has, never will. We are, in God's grace, inhabit a space and a story and a tradition, but even more so, a mission and ministry that is bigger than any one of us. We are called to be faithful, to be attentive, and to be obedient. And then the promises that are held before us, we may have confidence within I do believe God is speaking to us as a church and giving us this season of discernment and asking us to do so together and to choose life. Amen.